Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. For now, they realized that their religion did not consist in the mere memory of a good man who was gone. They realized that their religion consisted in a living relationship with him. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by Robert E. Spear. It was preached sometime in the late 1800s. Troy, describe for the audience where you're at right now. So right now I am in Indonesia and my family and I just moved here from Cambodia. So if you're a new listener, this is a transition we've been making. And if you're an older listener and you're wondering, uh, yeah, we've been, we've been making this move for a while too. So we're very excited to be here. But right now I am in a school dormitory on the campus of the school and I am in a little uh, room that we found here. So if I sound a little funny, that is going to be a temporary problem. We have uh, a new house that we will be able to move into, <laughs> which is very exciting because my family and I, my, my family of four, uh, with my wife from the ho- from Martyrs and Missionaries, and uh, we've never lived in a actual house. We've always, always been in apartments. So we're really excited to live in a house, and we already have a space set up for where we're going to put our podcast studio and make it sound nice, so we're really excited to be over there, and hopefully very, very soon we can move in. Yeah, I, I am also excited as your co-host for you for you to have a dedicated uh, studio room. That's going to be, uh, everyone's going to benefit. It's going to be a great, uh, a great setup here, uh, and I'm excited for the future of Revive Thoughts and everything we're going to be able to uh, record here in the upcoming months, but uh, today we're talking about Robert E. Spear. Troy, what did you know about Robert E. Spear before uh, this episode? Oh, let me tell you. I, I mean, I think we all know that Rob, everything about Robert E. Spear, right? It's a story that so many of us know. No, I, of course, I knew, classic. <laughs> I knew almost nothing about him. I mean, practically zilch. Um, I actually only found him by accident. I was looking for... Uh, back when we did the episode on D.E. Host, a very good one, on the guy who took the place of... Uh, Hudson Taylor, this gentleman's name kind of came up and I looked into him some more. He's a very interesting guy. He's one of those guys who's kind of done, not only done a little everything because he really always was in ministry, but he was on like every mission field you can think of in the early 1900s. He had visited it or spent time near there or, or done a speaking tour through there. He was very, very busy and very invested in missions, and that is really his life story. is just all about mission work and all about getting people on the mission field. One of those lesser-known names, but kind of in the same realm, same ballpark, same era. You know, think of uh, Machen, think of Hodge, think of Henry Van Dyke. We're all looking at those, you know, late 1800s going into the early 1900s. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1867, and he went to Princeton in Princeton Theological Seminary. He graduated in the early 1890s. And this is a time frame that uh, many wonderful men of God went uh, to Princeton and going into that era of Princeton that there was all this controversy over, right? You know, we've talked about B.B. Warfield and Machen and um, all these different opinions people had about Princeton during this era. And Robert E. Spear was was right in there with with these other men that uh, are a little bit more well-known, but going through the same uh, thing of America and the world, really, uh, becoming more progressive, becoming more liberal 
and uh, more conservative Christians trying to figure out what their approach to that is. How do they respond to, to what the world is doing there? After graduating from Princeton, Spear went on a missions trip to Mexico, and he realized that he wanted to work in, in foreign missions. His life is a bit of an interesting one because of just how many places that he visited. And I think it's because uh, you might meet travelers, you know, you might go out and about today and see people who, you know, they'll say, oh, I've visited, you know, 50 countries, 100 countries, crazy numbers like that. And that's not super, I mean, it's pretty uncommon, but you do run into people like that. But you got to remember back then, they don't have, you know, jumbo jet airplanes. They can just hop on and fly across the world. If you're going to other countries, you're either taking a steamboat or maybe in his very later end of his life, he might have been taking smaller planes, but this was all very new. You're hopping on train rides. It's still very slow. And yet, despite that, he was able to tour and do just constant mission work around the world. And he's not the only one. Uh, if you've listened to our episode on Campbell Morgan, I believe, if I recall correctly, about this time last year, he crossed the Atlantic something like 40 times in this era, just doing missions work. We also have J. Edwin Orr in the same era, who went all over Asia preaching and teaching. And then World War, World War II started, he ended up being a chaplain to the very same places he had been a missionary to like just five years before. And so we have these guys going all around the world, doing these big tours, doing these big uh, movements, you know, but they're all doing it on, again, steam engine boats and old trains and things that today we would find very difficult to get around in. So I'm always really impressed that this was a really common thing back then. Now, most of the time, you know, especially these days, we would say if you're a missionary, you should really kind of plug into one area and work that one location, right? You shouldn't just be running through a bunch of cities and towns and countries uh, really fast. And yet, um, there seemed to be some, this seemed to be a very common thing in that time to do. He ends up visiting, you know, Persia and he gets typhoid fever there, actually. He ends up visiting China, Japan. He'll spend some time in Central and South America. He ends up being in all over the Far East, pretty much everywhere outside of Africa and Europe. He's there doing stuff and being deeply connected to the work. And he goes to the Middle East, especially quite a few times. And he does all these things, not just like once. He doesn't just hit them one time, but he'll come back through multiple times doing multiple journeys and, and trips and tours through these areas, preaching the gospel and encouraging the missionaries and training people and all those kinds of things that you would expect. And he had great people skills. He was a negotiator. He, he understand the way that different cultures and different people work. And he was good at doing that where where other people would have failed and and had a hard time it was seemed to be an area where he really excelled there was this uh, you know for example this this time that he was in japan working with some missionaries there he happened to be in the right place the right time the japanese locals were frustrated that many of the mission decisions especially that had to deal with money were being made by the missions organizations back in america and their argument was that the American missionaries weren't on the ground there and didn't know the best way to, to spend money to put towards certain ministries and, you know, the best way to, to run the ministry there on the ground. And the Americans uh, were a bit nervous to give that amount of power over to the Japanese missionaries that hadn't been fully trained, you know, to give them a, a large sum of money to, to distribute as they pleased. There was concern there from the Americans as well. So the, the Japanese wanted to be able to spend the money more efficiently and effectively for the missions work that was being done there. And the Americans were thinking, you need a little bit more training. And there was, it was getting kind of heated. It was getting quite a contentious argument there. 
And again, Robert E. Spear happened to be in the right place at the right time to kind of work as a mediator. And he talked between them, and they found a really good compromise that uh, ended up benefiting both sides of the party and, and ultimately, you know, furthering that missions work and furthering the spreading of the Word of God. Yeah, I thought that was just kind of the perfect example of, like, even if a guy who's moving around the world, doing lots of things, and yet the Lord is using him as he goes to be at that right place at the right time. Now, in 1891, he was appointed the secretary of the American Presbyterian Mission. He would serve the Presbyterian Mission for 46 years. So, I mean, almost half a century he would be working this missionary life, which, again, too, this is the late 1800s, early 1900s. Medicine is better than the 1700s, but, I mean, you're traveling all around the world, eating who knows what kind of food on rush schedules. Um, you know, that's a tough life that you're going through, Not maybe not quite the same levels of jet lag, but seasickness and all of that, and you're doing that for years and years and years, and yet he does it quite, quite well, obviously. Now, while he was serving, he also married his wife, Emma Spear, and they would have five children together. And from what I can tell, at least two of them went off to join ministry and missions as well. I think, I, I don't know that the other three uh, didn't become Christians or anything. They just aren't as well known as the, uh, as at least two of the five. And one thing that was a bit surprising was also the impact his writings had on moral movements. So in the early 1900s, there were many groups that were kind of starting to branch away from just Christianity and starting to stick with virtues and principles and ideas, but taking the God out of it. Now, Robert E. Spear was not that guy. He would definitely be, you know, a Jesus Christ first gentleman. Yet his writings really appealed to some of the different groups that were kind of coming out of that era. And probably the most famous that you've heard about is Alcoholics Anonymous, whom they use specifically what he had written down called the four principles of Jesus Christ, which he said were purity, honesty, unselfishness, and love, which would be then used as the four absolutes or the four standards of that morality movement that the Alcoholics Anonymous kind of comes from as well, uh, adopting Robert Spears' ideas, although not taking the theology of Robert Spear with them. And this is just another example where he was a big writer. He wrote lots of books, sermons, pamphlets, everything you can imagine, as almost all of our guys on Revive Thoughts tend to do. But this is an example of just how his writing impacted people even outside of the really strong Christian Presbyterian church, but was impacting the whole world and encouraging them to relook at things um, and how they do it and building these principles. All, again, very good principles they are, but I think Spear probably was a little surprised that they didn't keep all the theology that he was applying with it. Like all uh, people, he had his ups, he had his downs. You know, we've been talking about a lot of his highlights, but um, he had some downs. He almost died of typhoid fever when he was in Persia. And, you know, I don't know about you. I got food poisoning once. Uh, so it's pretty much the same thing. You know, I can I can probably <laughs> probably relate with that. No, I'm sure I'm sure almost dying of, of typhoid is uh, is a much bigger speed bump in your in your day in your month in your year probably but uh, he kept pressing on one of the biggest challenges that came uh, through his life was you know I mentioned at the top of the show this was the time where Christianity is changing that that fundamentalism versus progressive uh, groups are squaring off with each other uh, again Machen was a, a big figure during this movement as well and he actually split off 
and started his own missions organization that had his church that would send out missionaries because the Presbyterian Church at the time wasn't stressing the gospel. They were taking a more liberal approach to missions work. And if you're listening right now, we did a really good episode okay. on this issue. Uh, I would highly recommend going to check out Jay Gresham Machen, one of our three Jay Gresham Machen episodes. Uh, we really talked about this whole missionary fight really well. And so you can get it from his perspective when you go to that episode. Yeah. So Robert E. Spear, and he, he's kind of, uh, he's an interesting figure to look at his life during this whole debate because he actually didn't agree with Machen either. He didn't agree with the liberal movement that was happening at the moment. You know, he recognized that uh, the de-emphasizing, the throwing out of the gospel was not good for missions, but um, he had issues with the way that Machen was trying to run things uh, with the church sending out missionaries. It seems like he really wanted to stress just the individual responsibility of missions, you know, kind of work on the individual and have individuals go out as missionaries. And, you know, we can spend all day debating about mission models and what goes on, but he really seems to be burdened on a personal level and think that others should be burdened on that personal level as well. And, you know, it makes sense when you look at his life individually, all of the work that he did, all the countries that he went to and all the people that uh, he worked with, you could tell that he was bothered by the world's suffering all around him, and he wanted to help fix those problems. He wanted to help contribute towards uh, stopping the suffering, you know, in every way, both through uh, physical needs, but also, importantly, through spiritual needs as well. It was less from a from a theological perspective and more of that uh, of an, you know, just an experienced veteran of missions is 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 how I kind of you know it is seem to be he seemed to be just a really compassionate person and that seems to be what shaped his view on missions uh, which is I would say different than than a lot of people during this era for sure yeah it, at the time the progressives if again just kind of summing up if you're a little confused there's a group of people who wanted the missions to basically just be handing out food and building houses and never really telling them why and hoping that people would ask them and become Christians. And that was kind of their missionary model. And Machen was going, no, 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 we have to be telling them the gospel, preaching, teaching, and planting churches. And Spear really was was agreeing with Machen on preaching the gospel, but he also wanted to be doing the helping people out and saying like, no, but we also need to be giving them medicine, food, and all that stuff because they need it. And so Spear really wanted to combine those two worlds of helping people while preaching the gospel. And remember, Spear has been around the world. He had visited all these different countries and continents. He knew firsthand experience what missions had been like for almost 50 years. And so I think very much he just couldn't, uh, dissociate the idea. And I don't think you should, by the way. I think we are called to go and give and, and do those things, be the hands and feet. And I think mm-hmm. the idea of like, well, I can't, if I preach the gospel to them, but I don't help them, I'm not physically reaching their needs when I can. And I've seen what the kind of housing they live in. I've seen the the worlds that they're in. It's just not going to, not only is it not what Christ has called us to do, but I think he also was like, that's not going to be effective either. Like we have this ability to give medicine and food. We should use that as a part of our outreach. This was a huge issue at the time. Um, and Machen is fighting the uh, the encroaching progressivism, this idea of just kind of taking the Bible and making it no longer inerrant and making it no longer the word of God and all these different things. He was fighting this front on so many different levels. Spear was also fighting it to a degree. He would pu- publish some articles that would get published as pu- fundamentalists, but he wasn't quite as the avid, ferocious fighter as Spear, as a Machen would be known as. The good news is, even though these two men that we respect had a fight 100 years ago, we do not have to pick sides. We can appreciate that God used 
both of them and that God was working in both of their lives and was using both of them to get the gospel out. Um, Spear never would be one of those guys who went down that progressive road that many others would. He always stayed very firm to scripture, the Trinity, the gospel, and the deity of Christ. And we're going to be listening to a sermon here in just a second on the deity of Christ, where he explains why, even though he's seen all these different countries, he's seen the whole world, he's visited all these different places, he's learned about all these other religions, he's going to explain to you why you can absolutely trust that Jesus Christ is God, just as he says he is, and that he is the answer that all these people are seeking for. Christianity is the only one of the great religions of the world which was named after its founder by its enemies. Other great religions are named after their founders by the followers. That they got named by their own adherents is not a mere accident, it is a fact of deepest significance. To be sure, the name Christian was given originally by its enemies, but it was given by them because, even from the outside, they had already discerned the essential and distinguishing character of the new religion and had been impressed by the inseparable connection which existed between it and its founder, Jesus Christ. The disciples of the new religion only accepted the name as the most appropriate name possible for them. They themselves were aware that the relationship in which they stood to Jesus Christ was the central and fundamental thing in their religion. So long as he had been on earth, their religion had consisted in personally following him and in finding their fellowship in his company in drawing their nourishment from his words, and in resting their hearts on the peace and quiet which they found with him. And after he was gone, they perceived that their religion consisted in a relationship to him of a far more vital and wonderful kind than they had understood while he was here. For now they realized that their religion did not consist in the mere memory of a good man who was gone, or in the effort to recall the things that he had said, it existed more than just to comfort their hearts with recollections of joyful hours which they had had with him in the days of his flesh. They realized that their religion consisted in a living relationship with him, as he is still a living person to them. Their faith was not a recollection of what Jesus had taught, or the mere memory of a lovely human character, but a living relationship to an abiding, supernatural person. This is the fundamental thing in Christianity. The name Christian is only a sign of that which is most radical and essential in its character. The main question of Christianity is of Jesus Christ. Who was he, and what are we to think of him? We cannot do any thinking about Christianity at all that is direct or adequate without coming at once to think of the problem of the person of Jesus Christ, who stands at the heart of his religion, without whom the Christian religion is not the religion of Christ. I know there are many voices today which tell us that this is not necessary. I was in a gathering a little while ago made up largely of college presidents and professors, and the subject under discussion was the evangelical basis of the Young Men's Christian Association in our colleges and universities. It was a little group of fifteen or twenty men. One of the college presidents in the group, a minister in an evangelical church, expressed it as his own opinion that the question of the divinity of Jesus Christ was a matter of metaphysics, and we should not trouble ourselves, and that we had no right to burden the minds and consciences of the young men and women in our colleges and universities. We certainly had no right, he felt, 
to make a dividing intellectual issue of it. Now, if it is meant that the question of the deity of Christ is a matter of metaphysics in the sense that it lies beyond merely physical and material things, of course it is indeed a matter of metaphysics. But everything, for that matter, of any significance is metaphysical. Friendship and love and truth and beauty and goodness are all metaphysical also. Everything that is worthwhile, everything that is real, all those unseen things that are the eternal things are also metaphysical. If that was what the speaker meant, of course he was right. Christ's divinity also is metaphysical, but then also if that was what he meant, he was wrong. Because these are the only things that it is really worthwhile to think about at all. Indeed, if you cannot do any thinking which is not metaphysical in that sense. But if he meant that the deity of Christ was metaphysical in the sense that it was impractical, that it goes out into the speculative regions and so it did not matter, then he was utterly and absolutely wrong. For nothing can be more real, more practical, more near, more fundamental for every one of us than the question of what we are to think and what we are to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Christ declared himself to be, and is believed by the church to be, the very Son of the living God. We simply must think about that problem. We must think about it, for one thing, because Christ can have no meaning for us without it. As mature beings, we cannot attach a feeling to anything to which we cannot attach a thought value. That song we were joining in a moment ago, More Love to Thee, O Christ, has no meaning whatever, except the meaning derived from the thought value we attach to Jesus Christ. If you think of Christ merely as you would think of Julius Caesar, then the song has no more significance than if we were singing, More Love to Thee, O Julius Caesar. All the meaning springs from the thought value we put upon Jesus Christ. Those men and women who tell us today that we can keep Christ for religious values even when we have lost Christ in his thought value are preaching an absolutely fallacious and meaningless gospel. For Christ will stay with us in our religious life. He will stay with us as an adequate living value in our hearts only so long as we give him his rightful place in our thoughts about him and his person. In the second place, we have to think about Christ and who he was because we are thinking beings. And wherever we go, we have to take our minds along with us. I cannot go any place and leave my mind behind me. I cannot carry my body or my emotions into a certain attitude toward Christ without also carrying my rational processes along with me. I cannot take apart myself. I am a unit. I can only feel about those things that I think about and will about. It is impossible for me to have any relationship to Jesus Christ except as I think about Christ and age my mind with reference to him. It is intellectually dishonest and foolish to say Christian and Christianity unless we mean something by those words. What do we mean? In the third place, we have got to think about Christ because he is a fact. You cannot get rid of a fact by saying, I will not believe this fact because it is metaphysical. You look back across the years, and there stands Jesus Christ demanding that you reckon with him, that you give him his place, that you think about him, and relate him to all the other facts that you know. Jesus Christ is not a doctrine. Jesus Christ is not a theory or a myth. Jesus Christ is not a mere imagination of men of our day. Jesus Christ is a great fact in history, and you and I are bound to think about that fact, 
to account for it, and value it, to determine what the quality of the fact is, what the relations of that fact are to our present life today, and to all the life of humanity. And once more, we have to think about this question because it was the only question that interested Jesus Christ. So many times we are told today that it does not matter what men think, that it only matters what men do. It is a wonderful contrast to turn back to the Gospels and find Jesus reversing this emphasis. What men thought was what interested him. He had no interest in a man's clothes. He had a secondary interest in a man's external acts. What did interest him was what men had inside their hearts, because from within flowed all those great forces that were to determine the outer life. And so, his great question, as he went up and down the world mingling with men, was the simple question, What do you think about me? Who am I? So if we have never done any clear, consecutive thinking about Jesus Christ, we ought to begin to do that thinking now. There will come a time in our lives when we will have to do it. We must reckon with Jesus Christ and determine for ourselves whose son we believe him to be. It would be good if today we go straight home to what is not only the fundamental question of Christianity, but the very bottom-most issue of our human life. Let us face for ourselves that old question, Who is Jesus Christ? What do we believe him to be? Was he in any unique sense the one Son of the living God? And I want to state in the simplest way I can the grounds for my own personal faith in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1. I believe, first of all, in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his character. For it seems to me, in the great language of Horace Bushnell, that the character of Jesus forbids his possible classification with men. The argument of the whole book, Nature and the Supernatural, is concentrated by Bushnell in that one chapter, the character of Jesus forbidding his possible classification with men. For Christ was such a man that he could not have been a mere man. He was a man so great, so perfect, that he must have been more than just a man. Now, we can put the matter in a very short fashion at this point. If our Lord was only a man, if his character was merely human, then Bowdoin, Yale, Bryn Mawr, and Harvard ought to be turning out better men and women than he was. If our Lord was only a man, it is strange that the nineteenth century cannot produce a better one. He was born in an obscure and contemptible province. He grew up in no cultured and refined community. He was the child of a poor peasant's home, of a subject race. Yet he rises above all mankind, the one commanding moral character of humanity. Now, if Jesus was all that just as a mere man, the world should long ago have advanced beyond him. It would not be so if it were a question of intellectual genius, because we all realize that intellectual genius is a matter of endowment and gift, and a man cannot be held responsible for not being as able a man intellectually as another. But we all feel that each of us can be held responsible for not being as good a man as any other man. We know that moral character is a duty of each one of us, and there is nothing in perfect moral goodness which our conscience does not tell us we are bound ourselves to attain. And so I challenge you, who believe that Jesus Christ was merely a man, to reconcile belief with the fact that you are not a better character than he was. 
with eighteen hundred years of influence upon the world, with advantages possessed by us as he never dreamed of in his day, if Christ's character was purely human, it ought long ago to have been surpassed, and there ought to be in the world to-day many men and women who are superior in their character to him. This is a crude, though I think proper, dilemma. If Christ was only a man, we are bound to surpass him. If he was more than a man, we are bound to obey him. I do not mean to let the point go readily with this general statement. However, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and proved to be such by the elements of character in him not to be found in men. First of all, there was the supernaturalness of his claims. I have come that you might have life. I am the light of the world. I am not here to condemn, but to save the world. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now a man cannot talk that way. If you should say in reply that the words I have quoted are from the Gospel of John, and that they do not actually represent what Jesus said, but only what John afterwards put into his lips, I should object. But without stopping to do so, I would say now, very well. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew and find the passage which criticism still leaves to us, in which Christ says just as much as he says anywhere in the Gospel of John, All things have been given to me of my Father, and no man knows the Son save the Father, and no man knows the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The supernatural claim here, just as strong as it is in the deepest of our Lord's utterances in the Gospel of John, or turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It is full of unique self-assertion. Who is this young man who stands on the shores of Galilean Sea and sets aside the wisdom of the fathers? You have heard it said, so-and-so, but I say to you, and who closes his discourse with the declaration, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out devils in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Whoso sets himself up as the touchstone of human life on the day of judgment? Our Lord by his claims set himself in a class absolutely apart from men. Now, he either made these claims or he did not make them. If he did not make them, then we know nothing at all about his life, and what took place in the past, for the evidence of the fact that Christ made these claims is as good as any historical evidence that we could possibly have. If he did make these claims, they were either true or false. If they were false, then Christ, instead of being a man of high character, as all men have recognized him to be, was a mere falsifier, an impostor. But... If they were true, then he was, as he claimed to be, the Son of God. Second, observe here, not only did Jesus put forth supernatural claims, but those claims were attested by our Lord's own consciousness. Let any of us set ourselves up to be divine and see how quickly we will fall down to the earth from any such pinnacle. Our own deeds would have us and our own consciousness break down, under the palpable falsehood. In Acre, Syria, the head of the Baha'is, Abbas Effendi, has actually claimed to be God the Father, incarnate on earth. But he simply could not carry it through. He could not bear himself like a god. 
but we look on the outer and even more on the inner life of Christ, it actually sustained the tremendous, world-upheaving claim he put forth to be the unique, supernatural Son of the living God. Men are turning now as never before to the study of consciousness. They are finding in the inner thought of Christ, in the inner life of Christ, in the integrity of it, the way in which he was able to carry through to the end. How clearly it shone out in the last days, as he was hanging upon the cross with the thieves on either side of him. He died because of his claim to be God. This claim that moved the hard-hearted centurion who stood and watched him die said to himself, Well, I have seen many a dying man, but I never saw one who died like this. Truly, this man was the Son of God. But the manner of his death only proves the sustained sincerity of his life. I believe in the deity of Christ on the score of his character, not only because he put forth claims to be supernaturally unique, but because his own inner spiritual experiences supported and vindicated these claims. And because of the universality and eternity of his character, I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Of course, he had to be born in a given age, among a given people, and he was born way back in the first century and in the Jewish race. It was impossible that there should be an incarnation without its being somewhere and somewhen. But the wonderful thing is that though Christ came in a given age and in a given race, he transcends that age and that race and is felt by every race and every age to be its ideal and its Lord. He is the satisfaction of all its spiritual needs. We see this aspect of his character illustrated in the universality and eternality of the sympathies that find expression in his parables. Some of you have seen, perhaps, a little book of illustrations of the parables that appeared a short while ago. They were by a modern artist. He had taken eight or ten of the parables out of their old Middle Eastern setting and given them a modern setting. One of them was a picture of a girl sitting in a restaurant with her wine glasses on the table before her. The other girl, a Salvation Army lass, was coming through with her tambourine, collecting gifts. Beneath were the words, 44. Five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. Another was a picture of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The poor man was sitting in ragged clothes in the last pew of the church, and the wealthy man was standing in his self-contentment and power. He was taking the collection and holding the plate at a distance for the poor man's poor coin to go in. Another was a picture of the man with the talents. A young man sat alone at his club, while all around him the air was filled with the figures of others who had toiled. But all he thought about was the opportunities that had been lost and thrown away, and it illustrated the simple verse taken from our Lord's parable of the talents. And he went and hid his talent in a napkin and buried it in the ground. These parables came driving right home into the heart of our modern life, as though they had been spoken today. And these parables of our Lord's, spoken nineteen hundred years ago, are cast in his native setting in the East, but are always and everywhere alive, and are typical of the universality and eternity of his living sympathies. He is still the friend of all. The first century Jew is the whole world's, and all the centuries' savior. Fourth, and from the perfect balance of his character, I believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. Everyone has some of the characteristics of Christ, but no one has all of them.
We develop one good quality at the expense or the atrophy of the loss of some other quality. Our Lord bound up in himself all the different qualities of the perfect human character as no other man has ever done. Fifth, but not to prolong an analysis of character too much, think of only one other outstanding fact about it. I mean the fact of his sinlessness. No other great teacher ever dared to utter Christ's challenge. What do you convict me of? No one has thought of claiming sinlessness for other great religious teachers. In none of the sacred books of any other religion is its founder represented as a sinless man. The very conception of a sinless character was never invented by man. It only came to men's minds as they saw it worked out in the character of Jesus of Nazareth. There is a marvelous significance in this part. The holiest man that ever lived. Everybody looks back upon him as the most wonderfully perfect character. And he was the one man who was never repentant, never asked God to forgive him for anything, who walked right through life without ever believing that he had done or thought anything wrong. Father, forgive them, he prayed, but never forgive me. Find a single great human character whose goodness does not rest on a sense of utter personal unworthiness. One whose goodness does not spring from the deep realization of having been forgiven much by the great and loving God. But here is Jesus of Nazareth, the one character to whom we all look back as the best of men, absolutely unapologetic. And he died, never repenting, because there was nothing in his life for which he needed to ask forgiveness. If you can believe that this character was merely human, then you are a very credulous soul. To believe that this character was merely human is a belief more wonderful far, involving more strain to human faith, than the simple conviction that we can account for the character of Christ by believing him to be what he claimed to be, namely, the Son of the living God. Moving to a different argument. In the second place, I believe in the deity of Christ because of his teaching. Not only because of the method and authority of his teaching, even though that was wonderful enough to impress in the deepest way the imagination of those who heard him. For he taught, as Matthew recorded on the Sermon on the Mount, as one having authority, and not as the scribes. This man spoke, said those sent by the Sanhedrin to arrest him, as no other man spoke. But I am thinking now not of the method and the power of his teaching, but of the substance of it. I believe the substance of Christ's teaching sets him off absolutely from the class of mere human teachers. For starters, consider his teaching regarding God. Where did he find out what he knew about God? He taught things about God which the world had never heard before and which the world had not been able to discover for itself. Today, as a matter of fact, almost the whole content of our knowledge of God is due to the teaching, the life, and the example of Jesus Christ. There is something to be learned about God from the heavens and the world around us, but in the case of people who deny the divinity of Christ and who say they believe in God, that God in whom they believe is the God that they would know little or nothing about if Jesus Christ had not come and revealed it. For he showed it through who he was, as well as by what he said. You cannot reveal God by words. You cannot bring to men an idea entirely outside their experience simply by talking to them in words. You've got to show it to them in life. Christ could never have revealed God by a mere doctrine. 
He could not by any possibility have broken open the shell of man's limited notions of God and expanded these notions to the great realities to which Christ did expand them by merely proclaiming intellectual opinions concerning God. You can only give men a new idea of God by showing it to them in life. This is the way you do it today. There is no other way. It is what Christ did 1,900 years ago, not by talking about this ideal, but by himself being this God in front of their eyes. And here we come upon what seems to me in the saddest irony of all human history, that Jesus Christ himself has created the difficulty in the way of men's faith in his deity. You ask men why they do not believe in the Incarnation today, and they tell you that they cannot believe that their God, so spiritual, so high, could be brought down into humanity. Well, where did they get that God so spiritual and so high? Why, out of the God who became human. The mere fact of this larger idea of God which Christ gave is now made by some men as the reason why they will not believe in the Incarnation, even though it is through the Incarnation alone that this idea of God came to us. Surely the man who will sit down and contemplate the revelation of God in Christ and actually think of all the implications of the situation will at last say to himself exactly what was said when the man's eyes at last were open, My Lord and my God. So it, this sermon, Deity of Christ, is not actually the only sermon, Deity of Christ, that we have in our catalog with this name. Um, if you scroll back, you'll see others, and this is not the only sermon on this issue. I think that's very interesting. Um, this may be just an aside, but there seemed to be an attack on the idea at this time that Jesus was God. That's you know obviously what Deity is, right? We're saying He's God. And there's multiple people preaching this in the very, very late 1800s. They're saying like, no, Jesus is God. He is deity. Like we need to see that. And they're giving different reasons why they have come to that conclusion. There must have been some attack during this time on the idea that Jesus was God that made multiple great men of God preach the, you know, not the same sermon, but the same name with the same theme. And I think that's something though, that we always must keep in mind um, and just be aware that we are preaching to the moment there are going to be attacks that happen to us while we're alive and we need to be ready to preach that and be ready to answer that and be ready to have sermons that explain why why jesus is god why we trust in him and why we follow him and i also think this is an important sermon because this guy would have preached probably some version of this sermon around the world to different cultures and different people and meeting with them explaining them and saying hey you know you're from persia you're from china you're whatever wherever you come from but here is jesus he is god let me give you your you know here's how we can trust in him and why i trust in him and i think that, that is something that we as christians need to be ready to do and need to be able to have that answer as to why we trust jesus as god Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Jake Korn. Jake is a former executive pastor at Switzerland Community Church in Jacksonville, Florida, who graduated from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary with an MDiv in 2016. He also served for 15 years as an army chaplain, and he's married with two kids. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you enjoyed learning about the life of Robert E. Spear, and you le- enjoyed learning, uh, listening to a sermon on Deity of Christ, we just encourage you to share this episode. To- post it somewhere online and let other people know that you are listening. We have been growing recently, and we know that when our show grows, it comes from you, the listeners. Uh, we don't have any special marketing team. We don't have any great... Uh, algorithm or SEO or any of that kind of stuff where people are getting our name out there. Our show grows almost entirely from word of mouth. And so we really appreciate when you share our show with others. And we really appreciate when you tell others what we are doing here at Revive Thoughts. And of course, at all the Revive Studios podcasts uh, that we have based on church history. So thank you for listening. And thank you for sharing those episodes. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.